This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Today, I am chatting with Peter Swanson about Nine Lives. Peter is the New York Times bestselling author of eight novels, including The Kind Worth Killing, winner of the New England Society Book Award, Her Every Fear, an NPR Book of the Year, Eight Perfect Murders, a Kirkus Book of the Year, and his most recent, Every Value Break. He lives outside of Boston, where he is at work on his next novel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Peter. How are you today? Very good. How are you? I am also very good, and I'm looking forward to talking about Nine Lives. Thank you. Me too. So as we start out, why don't you give me a quick summary for those that won't have read it yet? So it's kind of my take on Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. I've always loved the idea of the sort of strangers that are gathered together and then are bumped off one by one. And so I came up with the idea that instead of being marooned on an island Nine strangers in in my book, unlike 10 in Agatha Christie's, nine strangers get a letter in the mail, and the letter is simply a list of names, including theirs. And then the people on this list begin to die one by one. So there's a couple mysteries. One is who is doing it and why, and also what is the connection between these people that landed them on this list? So what do you think it is about Agatha Christie that makes everyone want to do some form of a story that she did. I mean, it just seems so appealing. And there's been a lot of books like that in recent years. And then also a fair number of books about that 10 days that she went missing. She just really captures everyone's imagination. It's kind of amazing. I mean, I think she is the best-selling novelist in the world. I mean, I think I think she's sell, like, after the Bible, it's Agatha Christie. And um, she's just remained popular. I think one of the things that that happens is she's she's a very good introduction to mysteries for young readers. So like myself, I started reading her books when I was probably like 11, 12, around that age. And they just, you know, hit that sweet spot. I love them so much. And so I've maintained, you know, like she introduced me to this world of clues and suspects and murders and devious villains and all this in a way that was that's somewhat friendly to kids as well. So I think 
almost every mystery reader and almost every mystery author can kind of trace back their love of the genre to Agatha Christie. So I think that's that's one thing about her enduring appeal. And the other thing about her, I mean, is, is just she is without a doubt. And I, there are some people who think she's not psychologically complex or don't think she's the greatest writer. And I think there's an argument for that. But she is the greatest plotter of murder mysteries ever. Her plots are, are so clever. And she kind of came up with all the, the clever ideas, these really, you know, drop dead reveals at the end, which, you know, I'm dying to say what they are, but I'm not going to say what they are because they're surprises. So, so she was such a clever plotter. So I think that has, you know, kept her, kept her endurance throughout the years. And I think you're right. Writers want to honor her by doing their version of her story. And she does have so many clever plots. It's truly amazing. Yeah, it's almost like she used them all up. I mean, I, I think she kind of came along at the right time and she just came up with all these really clever ideas about who the murderer might be. But, you know, in, in these clever plots, she came up with, and then there were none, which is, you know, 10 strangers are all lured to this island and they begin to die and they realize there's no one else on the island. So it's one of them. And they all have to sort of, you know, keep an eye on one another as they get bumped off one by one. So I think that, I think that's the book in particular. When I read that as a kid, I was just so mesmerized by that story and kind of terrified and, and all these things. And so I, I think that one is, you know, it's essentially the locked room mystery that people keep going back to. And it's, it's hard to do nowadays because you know, it's hard to get people isolated in today's modern world. There's cell phones, there's, you know, all kinds of technology that connects us. You know, you don't want to copy exactly what's been done before. So in my case, I kind of came up, I really wanted to write a, a story like this, but I, I wound up not putting the, the strangers together in a place, just having them be put together by this letter. Which I thought was an interesting take on it and nice because it was a little different. Yeah, thanks. So what would you do if you got that letter? What would I do if I got that letter? So the opening of the book kind of, it's every character getting a letter. And they sort of, you know, some people just throw it out and just assume it's junk mail, which I think we get a lot of. Some get a little a little more intrigued by it. I think, you know, I, I would be intrigued, you know, to be on a mysterious list. And I would probably be the first to go on and Google the other names and find out, like, if there's some sort of connection between them. And I think the characters in the story sort of some don't care. Some never really find out that it's this death list. I mean, it's confusing, like the FBI are kind of trying to track down the people on the list, but some of them have common names, so they don't quite get to them. But I would be someone who is trying to find out what what's the connecting thread between these people. Yes, I think it would be a little eerie because we do get a lot of junk mail, but I don't think I've ever gotten junk mail with my name on it and eight other people that I don't know at all. Yeah, and it's like a typewritten letter. Like, it's just an odd right. thing to get in the mail. Yeah, so you'd probably be the same, Cindy. I mean, you read, you're a reader and you'd probably instantly see a, a conspiracy in it. So you sit down to write this story, an homage to Agatha Christie. Did you have it all laid out before you started writing? Did you have the nine characters very distinctly laid out? Was it hard to make nine distinct characters? How did all of that happen for you? It's funny. When I first got the idea to do this, I was thinking of writing it very fast and writing almost like a novella, like having it all happen very fast. So I wasn't thinking novel. And it kind of freed me up a little, I think, to just sit down and 
kind of be like, okay, this this person got it, and just co- quickly come up with a character and how they would react. And I, when I finished it, I think it was novella length. I wrote like a sort of a 30,000, 40,000 word version of it. If you're not familiar with word counts, I mean, a typical novel is about 80,000 words. So this was about half. And I sent it to my agent in the interest of, you know, do you have any interest in a novella? Could I put two of them together? And he said, you know, I can, I could see a lot of areas here where you could expand. And I think you could turn this into a book. But in terms of the characters, it was fun to come up with just sort of ordinary people that I don't normally write about because they're not sort of criminals or villains. They're just sort of going about their lives. And I did know a little, I did know the connection between them. So that, that informed it to a certain degree. I did come up with the motive for the crime and who was committing it pretty early on. So that, so that helped in creating the people. But it was fun. It, I felt like I was writing little short stories about each of them. I would think that would be fun. And that was going to be my next question. Did you know who did it? Because I'm obviously no spoilers here. But did you know who did it? And did you know why? So you did know that from the beginning. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I, I mean, I think, yeah, it was pretty set. I mean, I might have started writing and not been 100% sure, but I, but I got there eventually. But it wasn't one of those things. I know, um, you know, I'm generally what's called a pantser, someone who kind of flies by the seat of their pants when I'm writing a book. And I know that some mystery writers do this without knowing who the killer is. I always know what the, who the criminal is in advance. So I, di- I think that's helpful because I always think that in mystery novels, it's the killer who drives the story. It's the villain who drives the story. Even if you don't see them or know who they are, what they're doing behind the scenes is what's sort of propelling your narrative. So I think it's important to know who that person is and why they're doing it. Especially in an instance like this, where you have nine people on a list, you can't just willy-nilly be writing without knowing who's committing the crime. Yes. But I mean, the, one of the fun things, though, was, um, right, you, you need to know what's being done in the background. What was fun is I didn't know in what order they would be bumped off. And I, I think that's another element to this type of story that's really fun as a reader. And it was fun as a writer as well, which is, I think you tend to identify, I do it in movies, I do it in horror movies, you tend to identify who's the early victim. Like there, you know, it's classically like the, the, the comic relief person, the, the idiot, or in, in slasher films, it's often the like promiscuous girl. And you're like, there's your first victim right there. And I was trying to come up with surprises about when people kind of get knocked off, because I think that is one of the fun of these, of these uh, types of narratives. Absolutely. And then also how they got knocked off. Yeah. 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 I mean, you do get to play around with all these different ideas of, of how, you know, and, and of course, they're all kind of these impossible crimes eventually, because, you know, the FBI does become aware of this list, and they're given protective details. And there's like detectives trying to figure out what's going on and all this sort of stuff. So, so yeah, toward the end, you really the killer has to be clever to try and get to them. Absolutely. Did you have a favorite character as you wrote? It's funny. I mean, you know, I wrote a couple types of characters I, I don't normally write. I kind of fell in, I have a kind of a gentle character named Arthur Cruz. He's, he's a nurse. He's grieving the loss of his husband and his dog. And he's this kind of sad, but kind of gentle guy. And I kind of fell in love with writing him. He's not the type of character I normally write. So I enjoyed writing him. So I would say, yeah, I would say he was my favorite. I'd say the easiest one to write. One, one of the 
people on the list is is kind of a budding a budding psychopath. <laughs> if maybe he's already he's about to become a full blown psychopath, so he's kind of the opposite of Arthur Cruz. In some ways, he was the easiest to write just because I've written that type of character before. But yeah, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed writing Arthur. Who was the hardest to write? Well, in a in a way, it was Jessica who's the FBI agent. So one of the characters on the list is an FBI agent who, of course, has the resources to sort of try and solve this crime that she's, you know, she's been targeted as well. The, the reason she was tough was because um, I'm a crime writer who hates doing research. I'm not like one of those people who goes and shadows police officers and all that. So I did, I hate having to worry about the details of what an FBI agent might do. So I had to do some research for her and figure out what what the chain of command is and all that sort of stuff that I just I, I hate dealing with that stuff. I know I know a lot of um, writers who who love it, but I just it's how I've avoided um, writing procedurals in the past. I'm much more interested in writing ordinary people who are caught in sort of crazy circumstances. Okay, this is absolutely fascinating to me. I don't think I've ever heard an author say they don't like to research. I hate it. I mean. You know, research is different. I mean, you can kind of go online and find out a lot of things, but yeah, I don't I don't do any I definitely don't do any in the field research. I probably should. I mean, I should start doing a little of this. Maybe I would like it. But yeah, I I just I don't like get to get bogged down in those sort of specific details, especially with crime policing nowadays, like, you know, there's all the forensics that you have to know about and medical stuff and you know, it's very complex. That's so funny. You're like, yeah, I'm just not going to write about those things so I don't have to research. I know. It's it's like laziness. So my books are built by laziness, I guess. <laughs> I don't think that's a quote I'll pull out from this yeah. interview. Okay. <laughs> well, so you write in short chapters, which definitely pulls the story along. What else do you do to try to build suspense? I mean, building suspense is the name of the game, right? If you're a, if you're a suspense writer. It's tricky. I, I don't... I, I don't have a set formula that I go for. I I try and feel my way along the story and try and come up with those moments when you need to sort of juice your story or have something change or turn. I find sometimes it's good to end a chapter on a hook, but sometimes I'm reading a mystery novel and every chapter is ending on a hook, and I feel like that doesn't work for me. It's like too ma- manipulative or something, or I'm expecting it. Sometimes I feel like a suspense author. I'm like, oh, they're following a formula here that there needs to be sort of this big moment every so often. But so I just try and wing it and hope it works. I'm a fan of slow burn stuff. I wouldn't say Nine Lives is very slow burn because I think there's lots of deaths in it because they keep happening regularly along the story. But I like those stories that do start slow. And those are tricky because you really, how do you hook in your reader without something happening? But I definitely feel like there are two things that kill suspense. One is not enough happening. And the other thing that kills suspense is sometimes too much is happening. Like you're just kind of like, we're, you get weary as a reader of, of big things happening all the time. And it sort of throws you out of the story. Does that, do you know what I'm talking about with that? Yes. The way I think of that is that there are too many twists or there's too much trying to happen that's not happened before. So people are kind of writing toward this big reveal, but there's so many different reveals. I, I think of it that way. Yeah, I see that. And I, there's a lot of pressure. You know, the, the twist 
has come in big in the last few years since Gone Girl. And there's a lot of, like, if you look at whole quotes on books, it's a lot about the twist. Like, this book will have a twist you won't believe. You know, not every suspense story needs to have a twist. I think every suspense story needs to have a surprise. Like, it has to have things happen along the way that you're like, oh, I didn't quite see that coming. But the twist is sort of specific. And sometimes I think, as authors, we're so desperate to come up with something kind of jaw-dropping that we push it too much. And so I have to watch myself on that and just try and um, have the story make sense as well. I agree. I don't really care about a twist so much as I do a surprise, like you said. I don't want to start the story knowing who the murderer is or whatever the story's about. But I also don't feel like I need to have these outlandish twists in my story to make it a good book. Like I would rather just have a clever, well-written book with a you know murderer I don't expect at the beginning versus some twists like Gone Girl. You know, to me, I would just much rather enjoy a good story. Yeah, when they're when they're forced. I mean, if a twist comes naturally, that's great. I mean, sure, sure, and that can happen. But when they're you, you can kind of sense sometimes when they're like pushed in there. You know, there there is suspense is sometimes it's simple like you know the movie jaws there's no twist in that there's a <laughs> shark and he's right. eating people on the beach and they go out to get the shark and that's it but it's f- filled with suspense absolutely i agree like i think of the silent patient as a twist that was very well done different than a lot of other stories and i got to the end and i was like wow but i just don't think that happens very often so it just kind of depends on the story but i just love a story like this where obviously there is going to be a surprise because you don't know who the killer is but it's so interesting as it unfolds to try to guess and think about it and pay attention to the clues yeah me too i like that type of story well i always like to talk about covers and i think this is a fabulous cover i know authors often don't have a lot of say in their cover but do you give ideas? Do you just wait for them to send it to you? How does that happen for you? It's it's interesting. Yeah, no, authors don't have a lot of say in their covers. I mean, maybe, you know, Stephen King does or something, who, someone with crazy sales. So generally, they send it to me. And my feeling is, you know, if I really hated something, I think my editor would be like, well, I don't want to have a cover that you hate. But short of that, it's it's not up to me. It's not up to the author. And it, what's interesting is, you know, when I f- when my first book came out, you you start to learn a lot about the publishing industry, which I didn't know about as as an author. And one of the things you learn is that cover design is it's an artistic decision, but it's primarily a marketing decision. And it's really um, the marketing and sales department that looks at the cover and thinks, you know, is this going to sell? And they use, you know, I think they they show it to people. They um, they go to Barnes and Nobles, I think, often, and and try and get cover approval through them. So it's it's a really a marketing thing rather than a creative thing. As is the title, which um, I think a lot of people don't know about. Which is uh, most authors wind up in, I think, sort of fights over the the right title for the book because again, it's kind of a marketing decision. You know, a t- most of the titles of books wouldn't be against the author's wishes but every, almost every book I've come out with we've there's been some sort of tussle over the best title for the book. Yes, I always think that's interesting when authors will tell me sometimes some of their initial titles and they're writing like a rom-com or contemporary fiction and I'm like, "Oh yeah, that sounds like a thriller." And I can understand why it was rejected and they've come up with something else. But sometimes it's hard to understand why titles have changed. So what was your title for this one originally? I had multiple 
titles. I mean, when I was writing it, I just called it the list, which you know makes sense. I think, which I which I quite liked. And then I had different versions of of nine lives. We had nine little lives, which kind of tied it in with ten little Indians, which is the original title of Agatha Christie. And I think someone brought up that that's you know a problematic title, and it might remind people of that title, the original nursery rhyme it's based on. I agree. You'd hate for people to be tying you to that. I can understand your side of it. But on the other side, I can understand where they're thinking we don't really want your book involved in that. Yeah, exactly. And I, and it's, the, the book itself is self-referential about Agatha Christie's and then there were none because a detective along the way sort of makes the connection between the two and actually talks about the history of that book and its multiple titles. And now I'm sort of blanking on other possible titles we had for the for the story. But yeah, for a long time, it was just called The List, which I quite liked. But, you know, I was happy with Nine Lives. I think when it first came out, one of the concerns was that Danielle Steele has a book called Nine Lives, I think, out this year. So I kind of looked it up just to see if that was going to be a problem. And I, and I realized I don't know much about Danielle Steele. She wrote, she has eight books coming out this year. Does she really? Yeah, or, and and one of them is called Nine Lives. So I was sort of thinking, so I, I mean, I don't, maybe she's writing eight books a year. I don't know. Maybe she has sort of a writing team, kind of like James Patterson does. But I'm like, all right, if she has eight books coming out this year, I don't think, I don't think people are going to be like, oh, that's the same title as Danielle Steele's book. So, And I'm sure her subject matter is drastically different. I think so, too. Well, what are you working on now? Do you have something that will be coming out after this one, or are you just busy getting this one out into the world? I have a book that's just been completed and is sort of heading into editing. Because I'm on the book a year schedule, I pretty much always turn in my next book before my current book is coming out. It doesn't have a title yet. We're going to find out. It's a semi-sequel to the second novel I wrote, which was The Kind Worth Killing. And this one is tentatively titled either The Ones Worth Saving or The Kind Worth Saving. I call it a semi-sequel because it has it introduces a whole lot of new characters, but it involves two of the characters from The Kind Worth Killing. It's the first sequel I've ever written, which is a whole nother thing. It was difficult, fun, but difficult. And that'll probably come out about a year from now. So your books come out once a year? I seem to be on that schedule, yes. I think... My first book came out in 2014, and then I had a book out the next year. And then I, there was a two-year break. But since then, my last six books are on. They all come out roughly in March. I'm really sort of, it's an expectation that I'll write a book a year, which I don't mind. I, I don't find the writing of a book a year difficult. Because really, when I sit down to write a book, I can write a first draft in three to four months. I sometimes find the, you know... Having having a book come out every year and having those reviews come in, good or bad, I mean, that can be sort of stressful to have to go through that process once a year. I mean, it's exciting, but nerve wracking. But but in terms of actually writing a book a year is, is fine for me. Do your ideas just come to you regularly? So you just write them down whenever you have them? Do you sort of plot out, okay, I've done with nine lives, I'm going to use this idea next? How does that all work? I mean, first of all, I have a lot of ideas. So I I just they they come to me quite often. That doesn't make them good ideas. In fact, one of my methods to try and weed out the bad ideas is that I don't write down my ideas. So if I'm laying in bed at night and I think of an idea for a novel, I don't get up and write it down. And I don't write it down in the morning. 
I use that as a way to weed out bad ideas because I figure if I stop thinking about it, if I lose the idea in my mind, then it wasn't good enough. So basically my process is this. I, I come up with an idea and sometimes I'm so excited about that idea that I just keep thinking about it and I keep adding to it and thinking, oh, who might the characters be? And I still don't write anything down. And then, you know, eventually over time, and this could be months. I mean, in some cases, I think it's really been years. I'll be like, wow, there's enough of this story here. And I keep thinking about it and I keep going over it in my mind that I'm going to sit down and start writing it. And this is going to be my next book. So that's the process I use. I mean, sometimes it changes. I think the idea for um, when I first came up with the idea of this letter and someone being on it, it was, it was that process. It was like months of thinking about it and wondering what it would be like and wondering who could be doing the killings and why and all these sort of things. And eventually you just, you have to start writing it out. And then if I lose an idea, like if, if I just, if I was like, oh, I, I had this idea once and I can't remember what it was. I just tell myself, well, if I lost interest in it, then maybe it wasn't a good idea. Okay, my memory is so bad that if I never wrote anything down, I would never get anything done. So I'm impressed. Well, it's different. I mean, I will say, like, other things like um, remembering, you know, what podcast I have to go on and, and remembering, like, grocery. I mean, my memory is terrible in many ways. But in this case, because I'm a daydreamer, I think because I'm a daydreamer, my my memory is bad about about certain small things. But because I'm a daydreamer, that's the process I think I use to create a story. So so I will say that my memory is, especially at my age now, getting quite terrible, except in the case of plotting out my next book. Well, and that seems to work very well for you. And if the idea just takes hold of you and you keep thinking about it, then obviously it's making its way to a book and that works great. Yeah. Yeah. And so far, so good in terms of I haven't you know, ever had a period where I'm just stuck for an idea. I generally, you know, have a few on the back of my mind at any given point. Oh, that's great. Makes that part a lot easier then. It does. It does. What about what you've read recently that you recommend? I always go down some rabbit holes with sort of older writers. And I've recently went on a sort of reread of Agatha Christie kick. So um, partly I, I reread Death on the Nile partly because there's the, the movie coming out, and I was kind of curious about that. I remember loving that as a kid. Um, so I reread that one, and I really love that Poirot book. I like it a lot more than Murder on the Orient Express. So I've been enjoying that. And then for new books, I, I'd read it a while ago in galley form, but it's a debut writer. Stacey Willingham wrote a book called A Flicker in the Dark, which is kind of a fun, twisty, domestic suspense that I really enjoyed. And that was, I, I think that came out a couple of weeks ago. It did. I think it came out in early January. Yeah. So that I enjoyed that book a lot. I want to read Death on the Nile as well. I've read it years and years ago, but with the movie coming out, I want to pick it back up. Yeah. So I just, so I reread it and enjoyed it. And then I actually just went to see the movie and I'm not the Kenneth Branagh Poirot's are just okay in my book. But if it's a whodunit movie on a big screen, like I'm going to go no matter what. I agree. And it's just so fun to go to the movies period these days after the last couple of years. I know I've seen so few, but I did go see this one last week and it had its moments and, and some, some parts I didn't like, but it, and they, they shifted some of the characters around, which was fine, but they kept the central crime intact. And, um, 
I and I and I love Agatha Christie's great at she often has crimes in which there are witnesses and the witnesses think they're seeing something but they're actually seeing something very different. She she's very theatrical that way, I think. And I love that type of crime and that's kind of what Death on the Nile is. And as an audience member or a reader, it's the same thing. Like you, you think you're seeing it something and then later on in the book you realize that you you looked at it wrong, which is a, you know kind of a nice a nice way to describe the process of reading a suspense novel that you're misled. It's very clever. It is. And I always like her settings as well. Yeah. The, the, not, the problem with the kind of Brana film, and this is a new thing in movies nowadays, is it's very clear that none of those actors ever got anywhere near Egypt. <laughs> I mean, it is so CGI. And you can just tell that the boat isn't real and they're just walking around a studio. I mean, it's fine. And they're big stars and they have great costumes. And sometimes it's, you know, and you just got to go with it. But there's nothing. It feels very, um, it felt very fake to me, which, you know, depending on, I mean, it's all fake anyway, because it's a silly who, I mean, you know, the whole thing's kind of ridiculous. But at least in the 1978 version, which I quite like, all the big stars are sort of you know, clearly on this boat on the Nile. Yes, that does take away from it a little bit. I didn't even realize it was already out. That shows you how slow I am about following movies these days. Well, the movie industry is, I mean, it's very strange. Like, I don't even know. I see that movies are coming up and I never, you have to kind of find out, you have to research, like, are they coming to a theater? Are they coming to Netflix? Are they coming to HBO streaming? Like, Movies are not typically released in the way they were 10 years ago, which was in the theater. I mean, oftentimes they come straight to streaming services. But I mean, if you're going to see this one, it was I I guess it was good on the big screen. Okay, good. I'm going to add it to my list. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you and learning more about your writing of Nine Lives. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily... That's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your shows. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.